1: The FT.
2: Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Megan Murphy. In the studio today, we have Patrick Jenkins, banking editor, Charlene Goff, our retail banking correspondent, and Jennifer Hughes, our capital markets correspondent. This week, we'll be taking a look at what's likely to be on the agenda for the banking sector at the World Economic Forum event in Davos.
3: Much of the discussion at Davos will be between the optimists who see a relatively stable economic outlook and those who are more pessimistic who essentially say that the debt, the inflation, the commodity price fears are going to undermine some of the long-term growth prospects.
2: We'll then shed some light on Barclays Chief Executive Bob Diamond's proposals for overhauling the way it pays its top bankers.
4: So what they get is a high-trigger cocoa, you probably get a nice yield, so you get a bond with a nice yield, and if disaster strikes, you end up with equity at the end of it. As far as bankers are concerned, and we know a few banks have been looking at this, they seem to quite like the idea.
2: And we'll end the show with the impact of Sir John Vickers' latest speech on reforms of the banking sector on Saturday, stressing the merits of ring-fencing certain kinds of bank activities.
5: There is a feeling among the commission that they do want to do
2: something to give extra protection to the retail high street division. But we start this week's show with the return of our U.S. feature, Stateside. Justin Baer is back with all the news hitting the headlines. Over to you, Justin.
0: Thanks, Megan. Last week featured a parade of quarterly results. The U.S. government chose four banks to manage the sale of a slab of its AIG stake, and Wall Street began to share some initial details on how well it paid its top executives for their 2010 performance. But first, it was earnings week for the big U.S. banks. We heard from Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, and Bank of America. Just a few insights. Uh, trading activity, which was already fairly meager heading into the fourth quarter, fell further in December. This hit all of the banks, but especially Goldman, Citi, and B of a. Fixed income trading once Wall Street's most reliable profit engine was a culprit, and the disappointing results have caused analysts to wonder aloud whether this business will take years to recover fully from the financial crisis. Initial reports on how banks are faring in January were positive, but a few more dud quarters may lead more than one bank to scale back their expectations and shrink their trading desks. Corporate and consumer lending markets continued to heal, we saw banks bank release billions more in reserves they had set aside for potential defaults. And a long stock market rally helped push more companies to raise capital, and some banks showed an increase in investment banking revenue. Looking to 2011, one highly anticipated deal is already in the pipeline. The U.S. Treasury will press ahead with the sale of its stake in AIG. The insurer bailed out during the crisis. Four lucky banks won the chance to manage the sale, Goldman Bivet, Deutsche Bank, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Wall Street clamored for the assignment, and in spite of the cut-rate fees the government will pay out for its size and prestige, the Treasury could unload as much as $80 billion in AIG stock. And on Friday, Wall Street offered its first glimpse of the 2010 bonuses paid out to its top executives. Morgan Stanley reported that James Gorman, its CEO, received $7.4 million in deferred stock and stock options. This is only a t- portion of his total payout, but it would appear that Mr. Gorman will receive less than the $50 million in total pay that he received a year ago. The bank also said it would defer 60% of employees' bonuses over the next few years in a bid to get ahead of new rules limiting cash payouts. Finally, Citigroup CEO Vikram Pandit, he of the $1 salary for the past two years, finally got a raise. He'll be paid $1.75 million a year now. His reward for steering City to its first annual profit since 2007. Megan, back to
2: you. Thanks very much, Justin. So let's turn our attention to our first topic, the World Economic Forum meeting, which begins in Davos on Wednesday. Joining us on the phone as he gets ready to join the forum is Mark Spellman, Global Head of Strategy at consultancy firm Accenture. What are the key themes we're gonna be looking at at Davos this year?
3: If 210 was all about stabilization of the global economy, 211 will all be about the trajectory and pace of the economic recovery. The title of this year's Davos is called Shared Values for the New Realities. And if you want to break that down, I think Shared Values is all about East and West alignment. And as we look at some of the structural issues which underpin the global economy, is there alignment, particularly between uh, the Western developed economies and the rapidly growing new emerging uh, marketplaces? And the question about the new realities, I think, is also important that a lot of the global economy grew last decade on the back of debt-fueled consumption. And in today's reality, obviously, there isn't so much debt around. And therefore, the question is, what are going to be some of those new sources of growth? And so much of the discussion at Davos, I think, will be between the optimists who see a relatively stable economic outlook with the prospects of growth, but not minimizing some of the uh, risks that exist, And those who are more pessimistic, who essentially say that the debt, the inflation, the commodity price fears are going to undermine some of the long-term growth prospects. And I think what that means for banks is that, yes, there will be discussion about banking structure. I'm sure there will be some discussion about bank bonuses. But the really interesting questions, I think, will all be about growth, where's that growth going to come from, what does it mean for banks, particularly in a world where there's going to be more industry convergence, and how are banks going to address that in terms of their branding, in terms of their reputation, in terms of their talent, and their approaches to customers.
1: Mark, Patrick Jenkins here. I was just wondering how much of a prospect you saw for Davos to deliver anything concrete in terms of the Eurozone. Angela Merkel is there, Nicolas Sarkozy is there, Jean-Claude Trichet is there, and we have representatives from, from Spain there. Do you think it's going to be a kind of key behind-the-scenes event for talking about how the Eurozone issues get resolved?
3: The critical thing to remember about Davos is that it's not about coming up with simple answers to some complex problems. And I think that what you'll see in Davos is undoubtedly some more conversations behind the scenes about what is going on in the eurozone. But it will be one more link in a chain. Clearly, uh, there is more political will at the moment in the eurozone to make sure that uh, the euro doesn't collapse. Sure, there will be some short-term problems in Portugal. We already know that the IMF is going to be in there. We've seen the problems in Ireland. Uh, the Portuguese government is under pressure. But I think that what you see is a resolve at the moment, and clearly the European Central Bank has a critical role in terms of underpinning some of the finances, particularly of the southern European states. But whether it's from Rompuy or whether it's from the uh, member state leaders themselves, I think the key question will be to remain and to keep the confidence of the markets. Uh, At the same time, is to send signals that the member states and the European Commission and the central bank want to uh, underpin the euro. And so my view is that what we'll see is, yes, more resolve, but actually the way this plays out is it will play out through the events of uh, 2.11. And my expectation is that on the European side, the euro will hold together just in the same way that in the U.S. there will be lots of discussion about the U.S. deficit, but fundamentally that's not going to change much either in 2011.
2: Just finally for me, last year at Davos was when news reports first started to trickle out about bonuses that were going to be awarded to people like Lloyd Blankfein, Jamie Dimon, etc. Do you think bankers are going to be in general less demonized than last year and that they are returning as sort of a constructive force in this global dialogue?
3: We all know for the global economy to work effectively, there has to be credit. And to a certain extent, there has to be a certain amount of uh, debt financing. And I think a lot of the the business world uh, want to see uh, trade continue to flourish. I think that's important both for the developed world, which needs export-led recovery, but it's also interestingly important for the emerging markets, where you're seeing more and more actually emerging market to emerging market trade. And that, I think, is underpinning uh, global recovery. And with growth rates somewhere around about 4%, the role of bankers is very important. So I think that we have a three-pronged debate. One is around the role of banks as it relates to trade. The second is around the restructuring of uh, banks and how that's progressing, particularly in terms of uh, increasing capital, but at the same time making sure that it doesn't hurt the global recovery And then the third dimension is what is a fair return to the individuals who basically lead the banking sector. And so I think you'll see all three of those discussions uh, reflected in the various um, forum that take place in Davos.
2: Thanks very much for joining us today, Mark. Well, let's move on to a story on the front cover of the Financial Times today, and that's on... Barclays' incoming, well, new chief executive Bob Diamond and his potentially radical overhaul of the bank's pay structure, paying their top bankers in contingent capital or COCOs. We've got Jen Hughes here, our capital markets correspondent. Jen, can you explain to people what are these COCOs and how can they possibly be used to pay bonuses?
4: Well, there's a few interesting points from what Barclays seems to be suggesting at the moment. And that is, well, firstly, the FSA hasn't yet approved any COCOs, under the new Basel rules. So we're not quite sure what these would look like. But the idea is it acts like a bond. And we're probably talking about what people call high-trigger cocos, which would trigger and convert into equity at an early sign of risk. These aren't the ones where you convert into equity as the bank looked like it's about to die. So what they get is a high-trigger cocoa. You probably get a nice yield. So you get a bond with a nice yield. And if disaster strikes, you end up with equity at the end of it. So as far as bankers are concerned, and we know a few banks have been looking at this, they seem to quite like the idea. Why would this
2: be such a far-reaching overhaul of bonus structures in general? I mean, typically bankers, most people think of bankers' bonuses as getting a salary and then a huge part of a cash bonus, which they go out and spend on their Ferraris and their Porsches every year and their second homes. Where are we moving to on this model and what type
4: of different sort of risk-reward alignment would this introduce? This would introduce what most people seem to think, particularly the regulators, a much better risk reward alignment because as long as the bank is going well, you get paid out. If something goes wrong and they start to lose money, you convert to equity, and then you're taking the risk that you're going to lose some of your money. You probably will lose some of your money in the short term. So effectively, this should mean senior bankers are looking at what happens to my cocos if we start taking this sort of risk. Now, we did have this issue from Rabobank last week. Now, they've done some convertible capital. Now, Rabobank is a mutual, so it doesn't convert to equity. These shares are just written down or these bonds are just written down. But what we saw was massive retail demand. By retail, I mean private banks, high net worth individuals, these kind of guys. At the moment, that looks like the market. I guess you could probably put bankers in that category. Patrick?
1: I can see absolutely why it's attractive for the bank to do this, um, because it doesn't motivate the bankers to kind of ramp the share price with high risk, um, short term gain uh, kind of strategies. But um, surely there's going to be some kind of backlash, isn't there, from the bankers who are landed with this rather unexciting instrument to, to hold. Better and there's no liquid market in it and so on. All
4: right. It depends on the exact structure for sure. But you're talking about something with an 8%, 9% yield. The Lloyds Cocoa is the only UK bank to have done something like this. They had a yield of about 11%. That looks pretty attractive in anyone's yeah, some terms. Yes,
1: some of them do look pretty attractive,
2: I true. mean, I guess the bigger question is going to be looking at this, and, and that's a very good point, is with all the rules coming on on bonuses, forcing bankers to take less in cash, more in deferred shares, would they prefer to have a big slug of cocos as shares that can be possibly clawed back, that are at a certain price, et cetera? And what would they think better align sort of their planning, financial planning, et
4: cetera? So, it's... Well, I think with this, they might end up with shares at the end of the day if things go wrong and the, and the bonds get triggered. But you're looking at a nice fat return, plus you get your cash back at the end. Yeah. So it is deferring the pay and aligning them on the risk side. I think for them, it's just something else to add into the mix. So you're not just taking equity the whole time.
1: And it probably takes the, probably takes the heat off them from, in terms of the, the whole government debate at the moment, um, uh, which is uh, an important thing.
2: Well, let's uh, go to that debate. Sir John Vickers, head of the government's independent commission on banking, making a hotly anticipated speech about early thinking on the commission's thinking of restructuring the banking sector. Some very interesting stuff there, largely along this line that we've been pursuing about if it's not going to be a wholesale separation of retail and investment banking, that it looks like they are closely looking at ring fencing, subsidiarization. Uh, Charlene, can you just explain exactly what that term means?
5: Well, like you said there, you, you, you sort of captured the intention of this, which is to avoid a full physical separation of banks, retail, high street operations and their riskier investment banking operations. That obviously would be extremely costly and difficult, very unpopular with the banks. But there is a growing feeling among the Commission that they do want to do something to give extra protection to the retail high street division, which is obviously where everyone keeps their deposits and small businesses take their loans and so on. So, Sir so John is moving towards a an idea of, of separating that without actually physically, you know, breaking up the banks. He doesn't want to go that far, but of he CD wants to give Anchors, that. Bankers I talked
2: to say this is essentially the same thing and will have the impact, same impact on their businesses, and that you know would be disastrous. Would actually make the UK far less competitive. Yeah than other jurisdictions. Well,
5: the banks are actually very opposed to this, and we have already seen some very strong criticism coming from Peter Sands, who's the head of Standard Chartered, who thinks this would be a very misguided way of going about it, extremely expensive, extremely disruptive, and actually the benefits to the economy wouldn't be there, to, You know, wouldn't really warrant this big drastic change. But they, they are keen to sort of make their mark and do something, so we'll just sort of see how this this pans out.
1: I think you're right. This has just been put out on the table as a as a proposal at this stage, and it'll be interesting to see which way the Commission goes before it delivers its final verdict in September. And then obviously the government has to decide whether to implement the recommendations. But I think, as you said, the most strict interpretation of subsidiarisation or ring-fencing the different operations could, as as Megan says, be highly expensive, forcing, for example, an investment banking unit to fund itself independently of the rest of the groups, that would add a huge cost. But I suspect that that is the most strict interpretation and that, you know, maybe we'll end up with something that doesn't go quite that far, but aims to achieve some of the same goals in terms of making the the entities safer. There's
2: been some interesting commentary recently saying, as momentum builds for this and in anticipation of his speech, saying... Why is the UK the only government in the world that is still seriously looking at this option of such profound restructuring of the sector where we haven't had... We've had some limited reform in the US. Obviously, other European sectors as well have had their own reforms of the sector. But is it something where the UK is pushing harder, too far? I mean, is there a fundamental reason for that that you see?
1: Well, we've had the most costly blow I think that's the short answer. Although America was hit by huge problems. Actually, a large chunk of the government money that was doled out to banks that had to be saved had been recovered. In the UK, the government is still underwater on its uh, equity stakes in RBS and in Lloyds. And it's still got a huge tens of billions invested in the remnants of Northern Rock. So I think that's definitely a, a part of the
5: and it's just become such a political issue here. I mean, more so than it has across Europe. The whole issue that we were talking about earlier uh, around p- bankers' bonuses and paying them. You know, there's this huge public backlash and they want something done about the banks. And, you know, this is really sending a message. We are taking this seriously. We are really scrutinizing our big banks. And we really want to be, be sure that we can't re- have a repeat of what we've seen in, in the last few years. Interesting that Nick
1: Clegg pitched in at the weekend, the deputy prime minister, saying that, you know, he backed this idea. George Osborne, the the chancellor, also sounded supportive, but there's a lot of doubt as to whether really he would have the conviction, really, to press ahead with such strict um, separation of of banking activities.
2: Well, one to watch. For sure. Um, That's all we have time for today. Great session today. Thank you so much to Charlene, Patrick, Jen and Mark Spellman from Accenture. And thanks to you for listening. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. And until next week, goodbye.
1: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.